Hello and welcome to the Canadian Psychological Association's podcast. My name is Eric Bollman. I am the communications officer at the CPA and my guests today are Dr. Judy Malone of the CPA's Rural and Northern Psychology section and Dr. Ray Bollman, who also happens to be my father of Statistics Canada. I've been listening to dad talk about rural and small town Canada my entire life and I finally had an excuse to call him. I am one of those sons who calls only when he needs something. And in this case, I needed dad to weigh in on the impact COVID has had on rural and small town Canada. My name is Dr. Judy Malone. I am a registered psychologist. I've been in practice for 21 years. Uh, 20 years of that was actually in rural and northern Alberta. And my PhD was one in which academically I specialized in professional ethics for rural, northern, and small communities of practice. My name is Ray Bowman. I worked with Statistics Canada for a long time and a good time. And a group of us started a series of bulletins called the Rural and Small Town Canada Analysis Bulletins. And uh, then I retired in about 2011, and I've been writing two-page fact sheets for the Rural Ontario Institute called Focus on Rural Ontario. So I keep looking at rural numbers from time to time. What are some of the unique challenges, uh, mental health-wise and otherwise, that rural communities are facing thanks to COVID-19 that urban communities may not consider? Yeah, some of the challenges for rural Canadians right now are going to be similar to what they always are for rural Canadians. But like most things, when we have additional stress or an additional stressor, that's going to just add on to everything, exaggerate things that already um, have occurred. So really there are some downsides to being in a rural kind of environment. One of them for sure are what we call social determinants of health, or essentially we know that rural Canadians have lower incomes. They have higher rates of unemployment, sometimes much riskier employment, less access to services and supports, and actually higher reported rates of racism. So you put bundle those things together, you've already naturally got a context where psychological and physical health needs tend to be quite a bit higher. You bundle that together with fewer services, much more difficulty to access services. And the fact that it's kind of life in a fishbowl, that's the reference that I like. You don't get sometimes some anonymity or privacy if you're struggling. If I give kind of an example, my sister's a hospital administrator in small town Alberta. They had some of the first cases of coronavirus. And even though the hospital worked very hard on privacy and confidentiality, most of the town knew who it was. And then we're reacting based on that and assumptions about where those people had been, et cetera, et cetera, because you lose that anonymity that may protect you in situations that causes some stigma. So there's definitely a lot of wonderful protective features in rural life, but those are some of the things that can get exaggerated or make it even worse during a pandemic for rural life. Right. And I mean, less access to healthcare in the first place is a pretty big deal uh, for rural communities, especially the further out you go, the further you are from uh, likely a physician and certainly from a hospital that can perform uh, larger scale operations. And, uh, you know, so to have this added on top of that 
must increase the sense of anxiety of where do I go if I get sick, right? Well, one of the biggest psychological stressors in relation to a pandemic or a similar kind of trauma is uncertainty and not knowing. So not having facts, not having resources, and that causes people to worry even more. If you're in a major city and you think, well, I know the hospital will treat me well and they're right down the road, you don't get that same kind of privilege if you think, wow, we're in such a small area. Do we have enough respirators? Will I need to be sent to a city? It just creates more uncertainty. Uncertainty feeds anxiety, unfortunately. It takes away from our sense of control in the situation. Certainly the... uh... Density of small places means access to health as a situation, and the distance to larger places means health as a situation. You know, you can have a small place like Russell near to Ottawa, so it's a low-density place, and there's probably a doctor or two in Russell, but uh, you've got excellent access to uh, a hospital, uh, you, you know, emergency with, uh, what, 40 minutes to a good emergency hospital, mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe Cobden, Ontario, up the Ottawa Valley, maybe the same size as Russell, again, two or three doctors, but a long distance to, what, the regional hospital in Pembroke or the hospital in uh, in Ottawa. So the rurality matters, and it matters in the sense of uh, how small the place is, but it also matters in how far away you are. So Russell is close, Cobden is a long way away. But you can go to a bigger place, a regional service center, uh, Charlottetown, Ontario, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, Brandon, Manitoba, are about the same size. They, 40,000, 50,000, they serve a catchment area of maybe 100,000, 125,000 on the island, uh, 125,000 maybe in southwestern Manitoba, a bit of Saskatchewan. So they are a regional service center. You can do a lot of things in those cities that if you went there and took your spouse there, they said, gee, it's a small city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But there is some heart surgery there, and you could uh, take your spouse who could be a junior hockey coach. You could take your spouse who could be a president of a small university in Charlottetown or Brandon. But it's a long way from those places to a big center. It'd be three hours from Brandon to the Winnipeg Hospital, probably four hours from Charlottetown to the Halifax Hospital. And that's where you go for big, uh, serious health issues. So you can be a big, bigger place, but still distance matters. So the size matters, uh, Cobden versus uh, Brandon, but the distance matters. Brandon to Winnipeg or, uh, you know, Charlottetown to Halifax. So those two things really matter in rurality. And and then will things be different after COVID? Quick answers, I have no idea. Uh, but certainly people are learning more now about uh, both telehealth and telemedicine. And you can tell me which is which, but I think telehealth is people using uh, telecommunications to learn about their health and get health information. And telemedicine is uh, more diagnosis and uh, some operations. You know, there are computers such that you can, that the surgeon can sit 
beside in a room beside the patient and use all computer technology to do some pretty fine uh, medical procedures and the patients in the next room yeah i've well, seen I, uh, at the ottawa hospital i i sat in with a when they did a surgery uh for prostate cancer uh-huh. and it is now a much much simpler procedure than it ever was they do three little holes but he could have been doing it from the International Space Station, right? right. I, the whole now, thing now, is a computer, and he's got the gloves, and it's sort of a virtual reality thing, but it's, it's an amazing thing that they can do now. Yeah. So it could, they could operate on somebody in the space station or vice versa. The advantage of the doctor being in the next room is if something goes wrong, he or she has the experience, you know, hokey Pete, something went wrong, now what do I do? Right. <laughs> And uh, so if I'm uh, now we're outside of Halifax, where I live now, and there's a fellow a person, a doctor in Halifax doing a telesurgery on me, I'd be fully confident that 99 or 99.5 times out of 1,000 that, that it would work. But they're not there if something goes wrong. But I, I think uh, telemedicine at, at distance diagnosis and procedures have, have a long way to go. Have a lot of promise. Uh, I think something I was going to move on to mental health. I think in a previous century, I was driving across northern Ontario. Well, I was on the Trans Canada Highway. There's lots of northern Ontario north of the Trans Canada Highway. Mm-hmm. Listening to, and I forget if it was the uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, or a social worker being interviewed about uh, counseling people at distance. And back then, you you could hook up uh, the internet, uh, but you couldn't see the person, but you could talk over the internet. And uh, they were saying some people are quite reticent to look a person in the eye and say something, but if there's a professional at distance, the person will look at a blank screen and tell the person at distance things that the person would, the, you know, quote unquote, the patient would be have some reticence talking to a live person about whatever mental health issue it was. So back then, in a previous century, you know, there was some research saying telehealth, telemedicine, mental health counseling does work at distance, at a distance. And I'm sure a lot of your people have more, a lot more, a lot of your colleagues have a lot more experience at that than uh, my one radio interview. But uh, it is still difficult to uh, get access in rural areas to all sorts of health professionals. Uh, yeah. It's just not, not the density there to have a specialist. You have to go to a center to get a specialist. And so we have, quote, unquote, universal health care but you have to pay the way there. So, you know, it's $150 for a taxi from here to uh, Halifax. And uh, how many people here would spend $150 to uh, get a taxi to go to Halifax for a procedure, an appointment, uh, counseling? You know, it's just very expensive. Yeah, and time-consuming, and it just makes it seem like it's a much larger project than it needs to be, right? I think there's an enormous future for telehealth, and I think that might be the major thing that comes out of this. I've been speaking to a lot of psychologists who say that 
yes, in-person has its advantages, but telehealth, telepsychology also has its advantages. People tend to open up a little bit more when they're talking from the comfort of their own home. I've been talking to a few professors who are doing lectures online now, and they're saying that they're hearing questions, that they're getting interaction from students whose names they vaguely know, but <laughs> they never spoke up in class. Now that they're at home and they can just type the question out on the computer, they're far more comfortable interacting and having a conversation with the professor, with the other students in the class. Uh, so there is something to that uh, where yep. people are more comfortable yep. Uh, yep. sharing in that in that way. Yeah, so I think that's part of where we go from here is can we build on what these professionals, professors and counselors and so on are learning from the COVID era and when the months after that, can some of that learning be carried forth? Uh, so, you know, I'm regularly on pills for a stable condition here. And I needed to see a doctor to get the, you know, the, uh, the uh, prescription renewed. I said, well, maybe I can just phone the pharmacist. And the, phar I, the pharmacy assistant said, let me talk to the pharmacist. Within 90 seconds, yep, your prescription's renewed. Well, you know. I'm stable. I just need the prescription renewed. Now, the doctor, the doctor will not get paid for renewing that subscription. I hope she has someplace is doing something important, more important than me, to get paid for. Otherwise, she just lost her whatever it was for uh, for a consultation. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the healthcare system needs to figure out how to compensate doctors and counselors and so on for these telephone exchanges that don't get recorded as a person walking through the door and is in a point, a book and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I assume that's doable, but uh, bureaucracies and, uh, and then, uh, you know, gee, uh, how many phone calls should a person be, how many doc, how many phone calls should a counselor make in an hour? 60, 40, 20? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you get paid for all this? I have no idea how to sort that out. Oh, you just, and, you have to do it like uh, you do with residuals from a TV show, right? Every time there's an episode of Friends that airs now, you know, Matthew Perry is making eight cents on Jennifer watching it on Netflix right now. And so every time that prescription gets renewed, the doctor who originally prescribed it should be getting a residual check. <laughs> That's right. Or, you know, doctors are self-employed. So they generate their revenue as a business model. Doctors could become civil servants, give them all $200,000 a year, and don't pay them per visit. Mm. That's also an excellent idea. Well, it may not know. be. I don't know if it's, it's excellent. It's, it's, a, it's an alternative idea. I'll let you sort out whether it's an excellent idea. Uh, you know, Canada has public health in the sense that uh, I have a health card. I can get access to a lot of good professionals. But the delivery is not by the government. The delivery is by private physicians in private uh, clinics, mm -hmm. and and uh, that might be good. That might be the best way of doing it. I'm not an expert. Well, the way we're doing it now, there is precious little incentive for physicians to go out to, uh, you know, a Darcy, Saskatchewan, a Moline, right. Alberta, uh, yeah. even you know around this area, Arnprior, Renfrew—they're fairly large towns, but 
places like that don't have enough doctors for the population that they have or physicians, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even though Arm Prior has the hospital, yeah. there are very, very few family doctors anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, so. And, and most family doctors want the people to come to the equipment because they cannot take the equipment to the person. Right. And uh, so Arm Prior and Pembroke have hospitals. But how many people drive by those hospitals, call them drive-by hospitals, I'm going to where there's good equipment. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, there are good reasons why doctors do not do home visits anymore. And some do, I understand, uh, but they're quite a, rare, quite a rare breed. Yes, they're definitely uh, very, very few. I know of, I think, two uh, in this area, and we're talking, yeah, Pembroke, Petawawa, you know, Berry's Bay, that kind of thing. They're mm-hmm. out there and they do some home visits, but they're very, very rare. And in the olden days, talking about another type of medical practice, a veterinarian was on the road, uh, you know, 18 hours a day, especially in calving season and that sort of thing. And nowadays, if you're a veterinarian, you tell the farmer, Put your sick animal in the truck, bring it to my my uh, shop. Then you move the animal beside a table, strap the, uh, the, move the animal beside a wall, strap the animal to the wall, tip the wall, and then it becomes a table, and then you can operate on the animal. Right. And so, so there, again, the veterinarians need or want, or think they need and want, the equipment. Now, veterinarians do uh, sometimes they have a contract with big farms, so... You know, every week they go to the farm for two or three hours and do a lot of inspections. So that makes sense because there's economies of scale there. You're checking 75 dairy cows or 2,000 steers in the feedlot or whatever. But uh, one-offs, they want the animals to come to their office. So many uh, psychologists are working in uh, rural communities in Canada, but there can't be that many that there's great coverage in uh, in every area. How many people are regularly able to access a psychologist from where they are? Canadians? Not enough, period. Uh, right. <laughs> this, you know, it's a, it's a loaded question right now, Eric, because we also have dramatically increasing rates of unemployment. And because we have a two-tiered healthcare system, that meant that normally there's not enough psychologists in public settings, so then you've got private psychologists but you have to have either money or good extended healthcare benefits to access a dentist, physiotherapy, psychology. And when you start to get higher and higher rates of unemployment, people don't have the financial resources and no longer have extended healthcare benefits. So I'd be very curious what the current numbers are, but it's not that good. What we already knew was the ratio of psychologists in rural versus urban were half or less depending where you were. So there were already far fewer psychologists per capita. And that's if you're saying per population. That's not taking into consideration travel distances. So a city that has a million people is very different than a rural region that has a million people because that region may take nine hours to drive from one side to the other. And sometimes we do have these ideas or hopes that some things would be a panacea, like, say, telehealth and telepsychology, and those are incredible assets, but uh, there's more and more vulnerable people in rural areas, so they may not have bandwidth 
They may not have sufficient internet. They may not have a private place uh, for even a phone call sometimes. So that, that adds additional barriers. And then if they're accessing a non-rural psychologist, that person may or may not know the culture, the context, the supports in the region, as well as someone from there. Well, I saw also that there was a pork processing plant somewhere in the States. I can't remember where exactly, but it supplied something like 8% of all the pork in the U.S., and it had to shut down because more than 600 workers tested positive. Yes, and it was the company didn't want to shut it down, but the local mayor or reeve of the county or whatever it is uh, shut her down, I think for for a good reason. But... uh, Yes, that type of impact is serious because uh, if the workers are getting sick by going to work, you want them to all go and self-isolate, and there are no workers left to go to work if uh, you know a significant share get the virus. And I think, I mean, we're we're obviously talking about the mental health uh, ramifications of COVID nineteen, and in the rural communities, I would imagine just the uncertainty around something like that. If you're in this beef processing plant in High River, Alberta, and some of your coworkers have tested positive, and you are sort of left wondering whether or not you'll test positive, whether you're going to be going to work tomorrow, whether the whole thing will be shut down, whether your job will still exist. Others who are worried about you know, disruptions in the supply chain that might affect their jobs and their incomes and that sort of thing, even if in the end it doesn't, just the anxiety over that, I can imagine, would be a pretty big uh, problem. Yes, lots of anxiety. And I don't know if the share of people with anxiety is greater in urban or rural. Because lots of jobs are going to disappear in uh, urban areas also. And the businesses just can't go for two or three months with no revenue. And uh, they just may not have any basis to start up in two or three months. So all, all those people are worried about losing their jobs also. So I don't know if the relative anxiety be bigger in urban or rural. I think the anxiety is going to be quite rampant everywhere. I have no doubt that it will, yeah. Yes. I'm just thinking that there might be, I mean, if I if you live in a really small town and your whole town is the one industry, the one plant, the one shop, yep. whatever it might yep. be, um, yep. and I don't know if High River is one of those towns, it's small enough that I've probably not heard a lot about it, but big enough <laughs> that I've heard of it before, yes. right? Yes, yep. so, Yeah, there's one big industry in High River, yes. And down the valley of Naples Valley, the big industry in one town is the Michelin tire plant. And, well, all of a sudden, well, tires are not an essential service, and tires are not wearing out because nobody's driving, and nobody's manufacturing new cars these days, so there's no new cars to put tires on. So it wasn't COVID that in the plant that shut the plant down. It was COVID that shut down the demand for tires, and the industry firm said, we can't sell tires, so there's no point producing any. So you guys are either on holiday or on layoff or whatever. So, And uh, will that come back? Well, sooner or later, people will start buying new cars. How fast will tires wear out? How soon will that plant pick up? And will it still be competitive? Will they start producing uh, uh, tires in, I don't know, Brazil or India or, China or Mexico or wherever? So... Uh, 
There is, in these single industry towns, yes, there's got to be a lot of anxiety. And I can imagine how um, terrifying that must be for the townspeople where the only industry in town is having to close for this pandemic, which means that they're certainly anxious about their jobs down the line, but also about the future existence of their own community. So many layers, right? So you've got a major employer who closes, which is devastating in a small town. You've got confirmed cases of a pandemic virus in a small town. And those, all those features are going to play in and then some economic stability, etc. And what makes stress worse? Well, either too much... Uh, doom and gloom sort of coverage of events, which uh, that poor community has had more than its fair share of. So if you live there, you turn on any news or social media, it's popping up, popping up in those feeds. Uh, so people can get really overloaded with that information, but not overloaded with certainty. If anything, it causes more uncertainty for members of a rural community like that, and that is really going to exacerbate anxiety and distress. And, you know, one of the things as psychologists we recommend is avoid discussions about the event if they're going to escalate, be very negative, etc. But I bet you a lot of people in that community having conversations about that meatpacking plant or that virus, those discussions are very likely to be fire starter or, you know, spark easily into directions you don't want. And that's going to increase stress and anxiety for people living there. That's not stress and anxiety about the future is not productive. But, you know, we humans like certainty. We like structure. We like to know what to expect. And that's really a situation that throws a rural community into a context where they have less and less certainty. Yeah, I can imagine that that's uh, the case across the board. Uh, and certainly, uh, one of the things I'm hearing a lot about is uncertainty over the food supply chain. So the idea that right now we know how a farmer grows a crop and then delivers it and how that crop gets processed and, and where it goes. Um, but now there's uncertainty about foreign workers who are able to come in and, and help harvest that crop. Uh, there's uncertainty about the truck drivers who deliver it from one place to another and every step along the chain, there's uncertainty. So I imagine uh, in a rural community, certainly a farming community, that would uh, just make things so much worse on a daily basis at the moment. Adding to stressors and work, farmers are an interesting example because there are industries where there have been a lot of layoffs. There are industries where people um, are either working from home or can't work, so they're staying at home and self-isolating to be physically distant right now um, the farm carries on I, I was raised on a farm it doesn't matter how right. sick you are or what's happening in the world you get up and you go out and there are chores to do and animals or crops that need to be tended etc so the workload remains high but the uncertainty increases and that is a particularly dangerous combination when you're considering psychological health and psychological health I in no way mean to imply that that's disconnected from physical health uh, in fact they're actually really embedded with each other uh, your psychological distress is going to make your physical health worse and vice versa
there was the food supply chain to restaurants and then the chain to grocery stores was a separate one and then the one that went to schools was different uh and now a lot of that is really lost and sort of uh i guess in the balance uh is that something that works itself out uh yes lots of these industries and all these businesses are revamping quite quickly but uh certainly um Restaurants are not buying mushrooms, so what are the mushroom? Uh, what does the mushroom industry do? Well, some plants will shut down temporarily, some mushroom houses. Others are selling mushrooms to grocery stores at lower prices, just to keep the, you know. The, and of course, they've got how many months does it? How many weeks does it take to grow a mushroom? So they've got about four or five or six weeks of mushrooms in the in the uh, barns are growing so you just can't shut it off immediately uh you know high river alberta was in the news they slaughter a lot of beef cattle for canadian market and uh, lots of people there were testing positive for covid so should the plant shut down well they're changing the pace on the supply on the uh production line and having fewer workers coming in and doing more tests, but they're trying to keep the place open. But uh, beef cattle can stay back on the farm for two, three, four, five, six weeks and not really lose much of their value. In the pig sector, uh, if a pig stays being back on the farm for a week, everything gets backed up because the plan is they know exactly which week that pig would leave the farm and they'd have a young weanling pig coming in the other end of the farm, other end of the barn, and the pigs would move through the barn on a weekly basis. So if the pig, pro- the pork processing plants would have shut down, then uh, the only solution is to start euthanizing pigs because uh, you know these pigs were bred uh, six, eight, nine months ago, and with an expected constant supply going through the barns and going to the pork processing plants. So that type of a chain gets broken. As you've been reading in the newspaper, another part of the chain is that uh, asparagus wants to be harvested soon, sooner in Ontario than here in Nova Scotia, but soon. And that's often done by temporary foreign workers. And the government is allowing temporary foreign workers to come in but they're being more careful. So people that used to come are have to go through more paperwork. When they get here, they're in 14 days of uh, isolation. And often the uh, asparagus uh, harvest happens in what, 14, 21, 28 days. So you can lose a lot of your asparagus crop just because of lack of workers. So all of those things uh, used to work uh, on a timely basis and predictable basis. And as soon as something slows down a bit, uh, you have less asparagus. And so therefore you need less people working in the asparagus processing plants if you're making asparagus soup and so on. So uh, some things are changing. So should I be loading up on asparagus now just to be sure? If you can find imported asparagus, go for it, yes. <laughs> Actually, I, I found a, a freezer full of free uh, frozen asparagus at Giant Tiger the other day, which wow. I found quite a, remarkable. I'm not sure I would ever have thought to look for it before. <laughs> yes, but there may be a bit of a disruption on the uh, fresh asparagus. It'll not disappear, but it just might be scarcer. 
how likely is a farmer in general out there basically working on his own uh, with his team around him uh, or her, uh, how likely is that person to reach out for psychological help in the first place? Uh, Is that something that they do as regularly as somebody who lives in a city, as somebody who works a different kind of job? Yeah, research and trying to unpack that story is... um gets a little bit messy because on the surface, it doesn't appear as though people in rural or remote communities reach out for help as much because they're not reaching out for professional help in the same way or in the same numbers that we could capture, like with Statistics Canada. Now, to begin with, there's less professionals. So how would we know if they were reaching out for help? Uh, They could be to naturally occurring supports. But we also do know from the research that there's a greater sense of belonging and often clearer social networks and shared values. So rural communities are closer knit. So if you're, you know, trying to do a case study example of a farmer, you know, if they're really struggling, they may not reach out to a mental health provider for support, but they may be reaching out for help, but to their neighbor, to a family member, to people that that they're closer with. That's always our ideal support is that naturally occurring support. Our worry or risk is when when they need more than that, or when the people close to them aren't able to help, maybe they're even part of the problem, they don't have that next level to go up. If you live in a city, you've got your naturally occurring supports, but easier access to additional resources and supports when you need, as you need. That that same level doesn't exist as easily or readily in rural and remote Canada. And I imagine that a farmer who reaches out uh, to his neighboring farmer for assistance might find a hard time doing that now because his neighbor is going through the same thing, has the same stresses, has the same issues to deal with. Yeah, we don't feel alone. We get a good sense of support, um, but, but it doesn't possibly do as much to foster that sense of hope. And again, we want to avoid discussions that can really be really negative about the event that just go in circles and don't lead us anywhere. And um, if everyone's in the same situation as us, we're less likely to get other perspectives. Statistics Canada did their labor force survey on the uh, week of uh, March 15th, what, 22nd, those 70s. And then the week after they did a bit of a survey, online survey, and they're just trying to figure out uh, who's stopped working and who's uh, not working and so on. And, uh, you know, the week of March 15th, one million fewer people were working. But another 2.1 fewer people, 2.1 million people were working less than half their usual hours. And a week later, they did this online survey, uh, 2.8 million were absent from work uh, because of COVID, and another 4.7 were working from home, but didn't 4.7 million working from home didn't did not usually work from home. Now the sample size in there is just not big enough to do rural-urban difference. The interesting thing was, if you were usually working from home versus unusually working from home, they the people responded with no difference in terms of their feelings on mental health or their feelings on family stress. So I was interested that there's just no difference having home, working from home forced on you. But uh, also in that week after the Labor Force Survey, March 22 to 28, on sort of the same thing, 
you know, they, they found that 34%, all of urban and rural, were worried they might lose their job. And 29% of everybody has said, uh, you know, I'm having, I'm, I expect COVID to give a moderate or a major impact on my financial obligations. So 29% were worried that major impact on their financial obligations due to COVID. And that's the last week of March. Right. I mean, things are changing. <laughs> things are moving fast these days. And for some things, not moving fast enough. And 29% uh, major impact, and 24% said too soon to tell. So about 50% are saying, I'm great, this is terrible. Right. So, so you're looking at the 29% in major impact on financial obligations. Uh, the share of that 29% with fair or poor mental health was double. The share with poor mental health that they have no impact on financial obligations. So if you, have, if you felt uh, uh, COVID was having a major impact on your financial obligations, 25% said, I have fair or poor mental health. Only 13% said, I tried to get this cleared. I failed. <laughs> well, they tried. That be, uh, yeah. And I was noticing the name of the person that wrote this, and I hope next time she writes this, she does it better. <laughs> I don't know it. So, tie this again. If you have a major, if you have a, if you feel you have a, if you feel COVID has a major impact on your financial obligations, twenty-five percent say they have full, fair or poor mental health. For the folks that said there's no impact on financial obligations, only thirteen percent have uh, poor mental health. So feeling so, a major impact on financial obligations is highly interrelated with people with fair or poor mental health. Right. The feeling the financial obligation impact or fearing that impact yeah, doubles yeah. your chance of having a less positive mental health outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it also, uh, those folks that have a moderate or major impact on financial financial health, financial things, uh, 44% said that they were very extremely concerned about their health at large, physical mental health, whereas uh, if there was no big impact of financial obligations, 29% said they had uh, they were concerned about their quote unquote health. So uh, whether it's mental health or health at large. Uh, this impact, this financial impact is causing fear and stress and so on. So uh, I'm glad you're working for the organization you're working for and the solutions will all sort itself out. What ways can somebody who lives in an area that's underserved uh, find a way to connect socially while still remaining physically distant from neighbors and friends? a really important example and you know also I'll pick on myself we've had family parties and activities online which is nice because you see everybody but my parents are in a very rural area and so their internet will be slow or it'll freeze they don't have that technological skill set necessarily so they're even more frustrated so it's meant me learning to pick up the phone more <laughs> I'm not great at talking on the phone but I don't prefer to talk on the phone 
But it's an important way to bridge this for people who may not have a lot of other options. So increasing some of the things we may not have done as much before and um, maintaining those kind of connections that, you know, you might talk to your neighbor uh, twice a month in a rural area and it might be, you know, related to certain cycles in the community or agriculture, et cetera. You might want to increase that to once a week or to twice a week and just even saying hello more often because we want to increase that social connectionness, but absolutely significant barrier when you can't just pick up the online tools or say you can grab your mobile phone and have a conversation with anyone. Uh, where I always lived, I would actually have to walk up the hill for my cell phone to work properly because I wouldn't get mobile <laughs> phone signal in the house. Right. So there are barriers. Well, my mom lives in thriving urban downtown Winnipeg, but still refuses to learn how to video chat or use any of these <laughs> newfangled tools. She wants a phone call every day. And so, okay, we'll do a phone call every day. My mom also was the one person I think left in all of Manitoba who refused to buy a new phone because she assumed that at some point the phone company would just get frustrated enough to buy her a new phone so it would switch her from the rotary to touch tone. <laughs> I don't know if that ever actually happened. She may still be talking to me on the rotary phone. Yeah, and you know what it speaks to why we are communities, even if we're separate. So not that you're the son, so that's a family community, there's neighbor community, friends community. We need to especially be aware of the people in our circles or groups that are more vulnerable because they're not going to have touch tone or they're not going to want to use a mobile phone or they don't have bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it means coming together. So as psychologists and as Canadians, I really applaud this. I applaud that recognition that what about our rural, remote, and northern Canadians? They are naturally, inherently going to be one of our vulnerable groups. Are we thinking about their needs and what we can do to uh, come together during this time? There is an NGO in Canada called the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and uh, it has been going for now on to 30 years of uh, the stakeholders, let me just plug my phone in here in case it dies. Oh, yeah. I'm good to go. So the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation has been going for an eye on to 30 years. And it's a collection of researchers and uh, policy analysts and government departments and practitioners are... You know, there's economic development agents in many of the counties in Ontario, for example, and regional development organizations and so on. All these people out in the field trying to promote rural development. And uh, so the, uh, the young right woman that's the current president said, uh, we need to put a committee together to understand how COVID is impacting on rural. And uh, so my contribution will be to try to get the numbers straight out of the labor force survey, but I have not been involved in any of the meetings. But certainly one issue is uh, uh, getting better telecommunications into rural areas. And this is the rural uh, federal governments have been promising more and better internet into rural areas since the internet was invented. And they, every year they do some, but uh, coverage is not very good yet in some places. Coverage is excellent in other places. 
Eastern Ontario has a pretty good program that the wardens of the uh, counties came up with themselves and got funding to get pretty good internet coverage all over Eastern Ontario. But not all people have got organized that and found the money and, and made it happen. So cell coverage is one thing they're talking about. But also telehealth, telemedicine, uh, even after you get the cell coverage and the internet coverage, uh, can we get better health facilities, better health information, better health understanding, and better interaction with health professionals in rural areas? So that's another thing they're talking about. And another big issue is just the indigenous population. And uh, so there's, uh, they're so remote and so vulnerable that it's a topic unto itself. I think that's where we'll leave it off. I'll uh, hopefully be able to move on to find those solutions. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You've been terrific, and I've learned a lot. Good Good speaking with you, Eric. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Judy Malone of the Canadian Psychological Association's Rural and Northern Psychology section. All right. Well, thanks, thanks, Dad. Thanks for, thanks for phoning. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, and I'll Great. talk to you soon. Okay. You bet. Okay. Thanks. Bye. All right.